me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. All right, Hebrews chapter 12, we will begin our reading in verse 22. Here now, the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape. If we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. We, sorry, wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, Let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. The Reverend Ebenezer Erskine, some of you will remember Reverend Erskine in the history of Presbyterianism. He was, uh, he left the main church in Scotland and was... uh, was a uh, really a, a very uh, a very bright light in a church that was called the Associate Reformed Presbytery, which co- continues today, by the way, in, in a couple of different expressions. We have the ARP uh, in in our country t- today. Um, you may know uh, the names of one or two men that are in that denomination today. Uh, the Reverend Doctor Sinclair Ferguson is ordained in the ARP today. So it is a denomination that persists, although it's, it's now come to the States. Uh, Reverend Erskine was a member, uh, with his brother Ralph Erskine, was a member of the Associate Reformed Presbytery when it first separated from the state uh, church in Scotland uh, for its, uh, well, there were some issues that were growing that were declensions from the original testimony. Reverend Erskine says this, See hence the dignity and excellency of a Redeemer's person and why he is so precious and valuable in the eyes of all that know him. And look on him by the eye of faith. To you that believe he is precious. Why, his Father's name is in him. His being, his glory, his will, his authority, and all his perfections are in him. No wonder, though the church militant and triumphant cry, Worthy is the lamb that was slain, etc. No wonder to hear the church crying, 
Thou art fairer than the children of men, more glorious than all the mountains of prey. My beloved is white and ruddy, his countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. Whom have we in heaven but thee? And there is none in all the earth that we desire beside him. I say, no wonder they make such ado about him, seeing they read his father's name, yea, the brightness of his glory in him. Let the world say of Christ what they will. He will be valued by all that know him. That's very fitting for our sermon series, very helpful. As we think on that visible church, we have been spending some time here in Galatians 4 and Hebrews 12 talking about the great things that belong to the visible church. I was trying to think of a way to maybe bring this home uh, to a a greater kind of importance rather than, you know, uh, well, gee, pastor, we're Christians, public worship is what we do. Uh, And it is really far beyond that. If you think of it, beloved... There is a day coming when everyone will stand before Christ. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some of them will stand trembling, about to be put away to an eternal judgment. And others will stand vindicated by his voice when he declares... Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful in little. I will make thee faithful also in much. We come before the Lord as the people of God and stand before him week by week in preparation to that day when everyone will stand before him. Beloved, make no mistake. Everyone will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And when we appear before that judgment seat, will we appear then as those who have habitually appeared before him? Or will it be as those who appear before him for the first time? Everyone in the world, beloved, is commanded and required to honor God as their creator and their redeemer and savior. Everyone in the world is required from the beginning of time to honor the Lord in that way. Some are in the habit of doing it week by week and twice on Sunday, right? Everyone will be required to stand before him. Some stand before him regularly and others Not at all. And when they appear before him on that great and last day, they will have uh, never appeared before him. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? Doesn't that help us to, to maybe advance the idea of public worship in our minds? It should advance the idea of public worship because this is that time that God has given to his people to prepare themselves for that day when they will stand before him. We stand before him today. We will stand before him then. We have come to Mount Zion. And here in Hebrews chapter 12, what have we learned thus far? We've learned about the place and we've learned about the inhabitants. Right? Remember, two movements that the Apostle gives to us. 
He says, first of all, it's Zion. It's the city of the living God. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. And in so saying, the apostle here reckons uh, solidarity, or can I say continuity, and discontinuity with what went on before. There is an earthly Mount Zion, and there is a heavenly Zion. There's an earthly Jerusalem, and a heavenly Jerusalem. And we are all required not any longer to appear in that earthly Jerusalem, which still stands today, and the ancient temple site is now covered with a mosque. Rather, we appear in that Jerusalem which is above, as the apostle will say in Galatians 4 and here in Hebrews 12. Um, We heard about the difference between Sinai and the true Jerusalem. We also heard how the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4 equated Sinai with the Jerusalem that was upon earth in his day because it had become a legal religion. It was no longer the church of the Lord but had devolved into what we might call a synagogue of Satan. So we heard all of those things. And so we said with great comfort, didn't we? We said that when we come to our Psalter and we open up our Psalters and we sing of Jerusalem and we sing of Zion, we're not singing of a piece of real estate across the Atlantic Ocean on the other side of the Mediterranean. No, we're singing about ourselves. We're singing about every place where the Lord's name is called upon in sincerity and truth, where he's, where he's worshipped in spirit and in truth. For it is there that he says at the end of Ezekiel chapter 48, that he will set his name. The name of that place shall be Jehovah Shammah. Which is what? The Lord is there. And that's how Ezekiel 48 ends. After nine chapters of detailing that heavenly Jerusalem. Right? 40 through 48. So here we are then in, in the place. But then we started looking at the, at the people. The inhabitants of that great city. And we saw, first of all, that it was inhabited with an innumerable company of angels. The angels we saw as that more generic term of messenger. So we have those heavenly beings that are sent in service of those who are inheriting salvation, but also the ministers of the gospel who are those heralds and messengers of the covenant in these days. And so here we have in Zion the preaching of the gospel. And beloved, the preaching of the gospel is really not taking place out there. That's where fire and brimstone rains down. It's only here, in this city, in this place, and places just like it all over the world that are part of that same city, where we are being prepared by gospel preaching to stand before the Lord. The second thing that we saw is that it's the general assembly and here we we reference back to psalm 42 and we saw that there is this festal joy that belongs to the people of god it is a it is a time of 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 celebration why because we get to appear before god and he lays not his hand upon us he receives us and if you will if i can use maybe a maybe something of 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 a more colloquial term he receives us and entertains us with his dainty things Right? We're told in Isaiah 58 to call the Sabbath a delight, something delectable. 
This is the day when the king throws open his doors and calls the festal assembly into his courts and lays out his dainty things for everyone to partake of so that we might get used to feasting on him for all eternity starting now. The third thing we saw is that this is the church of the firstborn ones. It's plural in the original. That is that we come as royalty, as adopted sons and daughters with Jesus Christ as our elder brother and co-inheritors with him. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn of all creation and we are the church of the firstborn. And that when we come and we join ourselves to, to, to Zion, there is a new name written upon our foreheads. And that new name is what? Royalty. We inherit with Christ. And it is here that this is testified to us. And so, if we can think of it, that when we appear on that day before the Lord, the Lord will identify His sons and daughters that are united to Christ. We are, we are identified as such today, and we will be also then. Then we come to the next, which is that those firstborn names are written in heaven. There is an earthly role, and there is a heavenly role. Right? And we don't think of them as two different roles entirely. We think of them as one perspective and another perspective. The perspective of the earth and the perspective of heaven. The perspective that the Lord has put into our hands to deal with objectively. And then the Lord knoweth them that are his. Second Timothy chapter 2. And let everyone that names the name of the Lord depart from evil. Right? And so there is a role. There is a listing of those names that are those inheritors with Christ. And so we stand as church of the firstborn having our names written on this role today. That when we stand before the judgment seat and the books are opened and then the book of life is opened, we'll find our name written there. There's a correspondence there. All right, so then we said to God, the judge of all. And that was last week. And we saw four things so very important in these days of unending arbitration and never being able to come to a final decision we come here to Zion and we hear the word of God from God himself and we say amen and that is an end to all strife. Secondly, we said that we come clothed in the righteousness of our mediator so that when we come to, uh, to God, the judge of all, we come to him with an inside track because we are indeed in Christ. Third, we said that God in his judgment lays open our souls, that he judges between joints and marrow, between soul and spirit, things that aren't normally separated out. And the Lord's judgment drills down to the very essence of separations in us. And it is there then also that he pours in that balm of our Lord Jesus. And finally, we said that we must be found in Christ. Right? We must be found in Christ that the Lord will judge between cattle and cattle. And here the weakness of the earthly assembly is seen. Because it is not only membership in the earthly assembly that is necessary. Beloved, you must be found in Christ. And yet this is the place of being found in Christ. As we've seen. So that's where we've been so far. And hopefully that is all augmented by our opening remarks where we said... Everybody's going to appear there someday. 
hopefully we will appear there as those who are, can I say it this way, well practiced in appearing in the courts of God's house. All right, so we move on to this next uh, bit of, um, of uh, inhabitation, right? Who's next? Who are next to be considered? And the writer will tell us, we come to the spirits of just men made perfect. We come to the spirits of just men made perfect. There are a lot of things that are, in, that are encapsulated in that little phrase. Let's, let's take this uh, briefly apart. First of all, there are those who have already been judged. And notice what their judgment has gotten them. They are made perfect. How were they made perfect? What was their, uh, what was the way that they lived when they were on earth? How did they, uh, how was it that they put themselves in the way of that good judgment? That rewarding judgment that said, that had a sentence written over them, perfect. What did they do? Well, I don't think we're left to guess. We're in chapter 12 here of Hebrews. The prior chapter is all about those who have gone on before us, who have lived faithfully before the Lord, who have associated themselves with others of like and precious faith. And when they did so, they looked for that city that hath foundations, if we can think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, whose builder and maker is God. They didn't have their inheritance in the earth. They had a heavenly inheritance for which they looked. And then we move on down the line in the history and we hear of all kinds of people. We hear of Moses, the one to whom it fell to organize that visible expression of the church, of God's people in his day, when the Lord saw fit to advance it from a mere patriarchal assembly to a national assembly with localities and places to go and places to go to worship, not just getting out of your bed and going into the living room, in other words. Right? And we hear of people like Jephthah and Samson and others who lived faithfully before God all of their days, sacrificed unto Him, associated with others who were themselves of the same profession. So they have had the sentence written over them, what? Perfect. Perfect not in themselves, obviously, but we we, we read about those men. If we turn back a couple of pages to Hebrews chapter 11 at the beginning of the chapter, uh, the writer is not going to be shy in telling us where he's going with all of this. He opens up like a lion in chapter 11. Listen to what he says. He says, by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. How was he righteous? By faith. And what did he do? He offered. Even in his day, he was a part of the public worship, offering to God by faith. We move on to Enoch. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. He had this testimony that he pleased God. His Fellowship was with God. It was said of Enoch that he walked with God. By faith Noah, verse 7, became an heir of the righteousness of faith, which is by faith. How? By building a boat, by hearing what God said, believing Him and doing what He said. 
The visible church in his day was reduced to eight people. But where were those eight people? Well, they were gathered with Noah, the one who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. By faith, Abraham went out from the land of his patridi, his his parentage, and went into a land where God told him to go with Isaac and Jacob and Terah and Sarah. And then from him sprang those who uh, who are numbered by the sand, which is at the seashore. We have Moses. Moses chose the reproach of Christ over the greatest riches that were in Egypt. That is, he forsook what was going on in Egypt and all of its false worship, that he might be gathered with the people of God. Well, we're not left to wonder what we're getting at here when we say the spirits of just men made perfect. These just men were just by faith. They were encouraged by their communication and association with God, by their appearing before God. They didn't stand at the end of days before God when they died and stood before Him. They didn't stand that day for the first time before Him. They had been before Him regularly all their days. Right? They have reached their reward. They await the resurrection They are freed from sin and misery. In the next chapter, chapter 13, listen to what the writer will say there. Verse 7, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. I agree with several godly commentators who would have this understanding to be those who originally preached the word of God, that first generation of apostles who are now passed away. Remember the end of their conversation. Remember that they were faithful unto death and imitate them. Be united to them in what they taught and in what they did, so that when we pass from this scene, we may be united to them in Christ forever. And all of this simply to say this wonderful truth that is often overlooked in our age, especially of a hard bifurcation between (coughs) the Old Testament and the New Testament. (coughs) That set of people, (coughs) those who have gone on before us, they are the same as us, beloved. The same faith and the same God meeting before him in the same assembly They came to Mount Zion too, as you have. And it was their tenure before God in Zion, meeting with Him in that regular way, that when they stepped through the veil, they simply stepped into His presence as ones who had been there a long time. Those folks are united to us in what we would call the church in Zion. We have come to the city, that city which, of which it is said, also here are the spirits of just men made perfect. Because we have the same God. We worship according to his command. We have indeed that solidarity with those who have gone before us. They were led by Christ. We are led by Christ. 
They had the lively oracles of God. We have the lively oracles of God. They had a public worship to appear before God. We have a public worship to appear before God. They have left their testimony behind for us that they might be an encouragement to us. And yet the best encouragement that they can be to us is itself inadequate, although it is useful. And I'll show you what I mean by that in a moment. But let us remember that the apostle will introduce Abel in chapter 11 by saying that he being dead yet speaketh. He does yet speak. But then he's going to talk of the blood that speaks better things than that of Abel, isn't he? Wow. So all of those who have gone before us, if we turn over to Revelation chapter 7 for a moment, we will see that there is a union and communion between us and those who have passed into their eternal reward. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 13. And one of the elders answered saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them into living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. You know what the great common element is there? What did, what did the angel tell John about the lamb? That he was in the midst of them. Do you remember how John introduced the church in chapter, in chapter 1? As the seven golden candlesticks and Jesus Christ himself walking among the seven golden candlesticks. As he is with them, beloved. So he is with us. We are united to them. It is not a bad thing to think about the great acts of God. The great things that the Lord has done in time past. Especially as it pertains to our fathers and mothers in the faith. Those are good things to think about. And that is why they have been recorded for us. That we may confess our solidarity to them. Or with them. With Christ. So who do we see as the inhabitants of this city thus far? We have the innumerable company of angels. It is the church of the firstborn ones. Whose names are written in heaven. God is there as the judge of all. The spirits of just men made perfect. And now notice introduced with the word and here. To bring it to a kind of climax. And to Jesus. The mediator of the new covenant. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Well, this is a fairly complex thing that he, that he introduces here, <clears throat> but it's not so complex that we cannot understand it. First of all, he says, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Well, we've just mentioned that, haven't we? That it was Jesus that walked among the candlesticks, and it was Jesus that walks among the people that are already glorified. 
those who are, in, are, who are arrayed with their white robes, who have come out of great tribulation here upon earth. <clears throat> Yet when we speak of the Lord Jesus Christ as our mediator, we introduce a topic that is nigh to, to, uh, to uh, impossible to understand. It is so deep. It is so difficult for us. We have our Lord Jesus Christ who is that daysman of Job chapter 9 who is able to take hold of heaven and earth. Jesus will say that same thing about himself, won't he, when he's talking to Nathaniel in the first chapter of John's Gospel, 151. And he will liken himself to the ladder of Jacob, that only thing that anyone ever saw that actually did stretch between heaven and earth. No, the Tower of, ba of, of Babel never made it up to the top. Never made it to heaven. Right? But Christ has. He has come down from heaven. The one sent of his Father to remain as that only concourse between heaven and earth. That only mediator upon whom the angels of God ascend and descend with their divine errands of redemption and salvation. Only upon Christ. He who is our mediator is one with us. Right? We've already settled this back in chapter 2. He did not take upon him the nature of angels. He took upon him the seed of Abraham. He is all one with them. He's not, a, he's not ashamed to be called their mediator and savior. I will declare my name unto, thy, unto my brethren. In the midst of the church I will sing praises. Unto thee, I and the children whom thou hast given me are for signs and for wonders. These all the scripture puts in the mouth of Christ because he has become one with his people in taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul and yet retaining undiminished deity. The baby in the manger upholds the universe. And yet here he is. We have come to him. And beloved, we must come to him. This is why we sang from Psalm 106, 19 through 31. Because in those days, there was a type of Christ that was set before the people. His name was Moses. And there was a day, a real day in the history of redemption when the sun went up and came down. An actual day, not a legend. When the people of God danced around a golden calf and committed horrid idolatry with all of its earthly practice. No more details, that's all you get. And so, Moses came down the mountain, and what did God say to Moses? You'll remember. He said to Moses, the people that you have brought up out of Egypt have corrupted themselves, and they've made themselves a golden calf, and they've danced, and they've said, This is thy God, O Israel, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Stand back, Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to destroy them for their idolatry. They have broken covenant with me. You remember what, what, what we did in Exodus 24. The people stood up and said, All that the Lord has commanded, we will do and be obedient. But instead what they did was at their first opportunity when Moses was away for them, from them for just a little bit. When their mediator was away from them for just a little bit. They devolved into idolatry. Oh beloved, how long do you think 
we can go without our mediator. Beloved, how long do you think we can go? Can we go truly week upon week? Not appearing before the Lord and expect ourselves not to devolve into idolatry. Isn't that what the writer said just two chapters ago in chapter 10? We don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. You know why? Because if we sin willfully after that we've received the knowledge of truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation and looking for of fire and indignation that will devour the adversaries. This is why we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. How long do you think we can breathe the air of the world and not be infused with its poison? How, how long, how often do we need to breathe the rarefied air of the new Jerusalem in order to be healed by its tonics? You hear? In a day when public worship has become an elective thing, beloved, it is no wonder why the church looks so much like the world. Just a little while, just 40 days away from Moses and the people of God were found committing idolatry at the base of the very mountain where they said to Moses, you go up there and talk to him, we're too afraid. No show of glory or power or threatening was enough to keep them from idolatry. In the absence of their mediator, they fell. So we sang Psalm 106 because at that very time, Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, do not destroy them. This will be more of a mark on your name. No, it is your name, it is your promises that you honor. I know this about you. And so Moses interceded. How did we put it in our metrical version? Then said he, he would them destroy, had not his wrath to stay. His chosen Moses stood in breach, that them he should not slay. And Moses stood that day as a type of Christ. Beloved, how long can we go without the sweet influences of our mediator before we apostatize ourselves? I tell you, much shorter than you would imagine. I dare say that, especially those of you that, I don't know how to say this politely, have a few decades on you with me, that you know people just like we're talking about. Just a few weeks, just a few months, turning into just a few years of not spending time with their mediator in Zion. Well, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And he is the mediator of the new covenant. But Well, by the time we get this far in Hebrews chapter 12, we've already hashed all of that out in 8, 9, and 10, haven't we? In chapters 8, 9, and 10, we have heard about that new covenant. We have heard that it is a writing that is written upon the heart. I will write my laws in their heart. I'll put them in their minds. No more shall a man say, Know the Lord to his neighbor. Why? For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. I will forgive their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. This is the Jesus to whom we come. And notice what he will go on to say. And to that blood of sprinkling that speaketh 
better things than that of Abel. Oh, we were encouraged two chapters ago to listen to Abel. He being dead yet speaks because he spoke of his faith in Christ. And now what is Abel's voice doing here in Hebrews chapter 12? He is meeting with us in the assembly. He's one of those departed saints and he is saying what? He's saying, hear Christ and listen to the blood of his sprinkling. That blood of sprinkling back in chapter 10, it reaches all the way to the heart. Right? Having your heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and your bodies washed with pure water. The inside and the outside. The sign and the thing signified. But then, beloved, it comes home very poignantly in chapter 20, I'm sorry, in verse 25. Much more could be said on the mediation of Christ. I hope that we've said enough here to, 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 to help you. I, you know, there's a, we could preach a series of sermons on Christ's mediation. I don't want to leave you with less than what you should have. But for our purposes here of Zion, remember that this is where Christ meets with his people. This is that place where we become, where, where we enter into face-to-face relationship with God. I'll tell you what, one passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We must. Contrasting the Old Testament and the New Testament. Listen to what the Apostle Paul tells us. So there was a time in the history of Israel when Moses went up into the mountain to spend time with God. He came down after those 40 days and something happened to him. His face began to glow with the glory of God. But it was a fading glory. Now I'll tell you what I think Moses was doing. I don't think Moses was intentionally covering up the glory because it would have been um, a denigration to himself. I think he put a veil over his face so that in between times, well, here was the pattern. Moses went up into the mountain. He spoke with God. He came down, his face shone. He spoke with the people while his face shone. Then he put a covering upon his face because that glory was fading. Then he went back up into the mountain a little bit later and, or, or to the uh, tabernacle of meeting and got his, quote, batteries recharged. And he came back to the people and spoke to them with the glory upon his face. Then he put a veil over his face while that veil, sorry, while that glory faded. And I think that was repeated over and over again throughout the years that Moses ministered to the people of God. Some of the rabbis believe that Moses never took the veil off of his face. I think that's a grave error. Moses took the veil off of his face when he taught the people so that they would recognize that what he taught them was the very word of God. That it came from God's glory himself. But then he put the veil back on his face Because he didn't want them to see that God's glory was fading from off his face as if the word of God somehow wore out. Moses had a good intention in putting the veil on his face. But notice what it says here. Hear the Apostle Paul's interpretation of that activity. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, 
which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it, that is their heart, shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. And I think what Paul is getting at here is that uh, Moses was trying to hide the fact that the veil Uh, that the glory was fading away. But that would have been a sign to the people that Moses wasn't all there was. There was something yet to come that was more glorious than Moses. But they didn't see it because they never saw the glory fade. And so, even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil is on their heart. What are the Jews of Paul's day saying? We have Moses. We don't need Christ. When, if it was recorded for them, and if they would have remembered that the veil was fading, they would, have, they would have understood, or at least it would have been a testimony to them, that Moses was designed to flee off of the scene and Christ to come as the object of their affection. But they didn't see it. And so the veil remained upon their heart, even in the days of Paul, when that Old Testament scripture was read. All right, now verse 17. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding in a glass the glory of the Lord, (coughs) are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as as we have received mercy, we faint not. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. You see, now we're talking about shining glory again who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. When we come to Jesus in Zion, we come to that glory that faded off of Moses' face and is ever refreshed in Christ's face because it never fades from his. This is our mediator. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He has the power of an everlasting life and his glory never fades. And this is who we come to in Zion. This is why the apostle in Hebrews 12 saved that for last into the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. Oh, Abel's blood had something to say. But it is silenced. It is silenced by the shouting, grace, grace, as it says in the prophecy of Zechariah. So, these are the inhabitants of Zion. It's not just the people next to you. It's not just those who are here with you in this church today. It is the innumerable company of angels. It's the festal assembly of those who are royalty, the firstborn ones, whose names are written in heaven. We come to God, the judge of all. We come to the spirits of just men made perfect, and we come to Jesus, 
the mediator of the new covenant. We come to a glory that never fades. An efficacy in mediation that never needs to be improved upon. Moses needed to leave the scene. Christ never leaves the scene. He ever lives to make intercession for us. So then in verse 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. May I ask this question? It is probably an obvious question to you as far as we've come together thus far. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. What is the implication of verse 25? The necessary implication of verse 25 is that you are found in the place where he speaks. If you're not in the place where he speaks, you have nothing to refuse. Beloved, those who are out there, those who are out there where it's raining fire and brimstone, they have nothing to answer for. They have never heard The only thing that they've heard is that natural witness that we read about in Psalm 19 and Romans 1. That continual pounding of the glory of God in His creative and judgment office. That's all they have. That's what the children of Israel thought they heard at Sinai. And so that's why they said to Moses, too much. It's not really what they heard, but that's what they thought they heard. Actually, they heard the voice of Christ. But they refused communion with him. Notice what it says. For if they escaped not, who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth, but also the heaven. And this word yet once more signifieth The removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made. That those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And here is the piece de resistance. Wherefore receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, moved. Let us have grace. Beloved. What other assembly is it that can make that claim? It will never be shaken. It will never be moved. Could ancient Rome make that claim? Oh, it did make that claim, didn't it? Mm -hmm. Can post-Weimar Germany make that claim? Oh, it did make that claim. Can America make that claim? Well, she seems to make that claim with her presumption every day. But there is no other nation, no other assembly, no other society whom the Lord has said, this is a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And this is the kingdom to which we come when we appear in Zion. I don't know how to raise your esteem more than that. I don't know how to tell you beyond that except maybe to move on to Psalm 87 next week. Um, how that, uh, that for your own self-interest, beloved, it behooves you to be associated with Zion 
Because this is the kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is the kingdom where Christ is. The mediator of the new covenant. And the blood of sprinkling. That speaks farther and louder. And with more efficacy than Abel's ever did. So this is about raising your esteem. Making use. So let's go ahead and make a few uses. And then we'll close. We're just about at the end of our time anyway. We have been speaking then in this brief series here about valuation. Valuation. Do we value the public worship and all that goes with it such that we have reckoned these furnishings, these provisions, and these companions rightly? Let us ask a few questions. Where would we be without these benefits? Where would we be? The human mind is, a, is an amazing thing, isn't it? It's, we, we, we think of ourselves as being you know, resilient and we have memory and we have all kinds of wonderful mental things that we do. And then if we're going to be honest, we have to put the other shoe down also and say that there are some things that take place in the human mind that are not commendable, that we ought not to advertise so loudly. One of those is we get used to things, right? They lose their shine, as we say. No matter how good they are, no matter how nice, no matter how pristine, no matter how useful, no matter how opulent, no matter how fill in the blank, they lose their shine. For many, beloved, the public worship of God can lose its shine. Why? Well, because it seems common to us. There are lots of churches that meet all over the land and lots of people that come and go as they please and Certainly there's, uh, that can't be wrong as widespread as it seems. Where would we be though without the ministry of the word? I think it's difficult for us to imagine it. Why? Because we have been under the ministry of the word for so long, it would be difficult for us to think about what it means to be out from under it. How our minds would work, what attitudes we would have, and so on. You know, how, you know how, we, how we would restore that, right? Just being out from under the worship, as we said for a, uh, a little while ago, for a short period of time, and we would see those weeds and dark lines growing back into our thoughts, perverting and twisting them away from Scripture. Don't let the familiarity, in other words, make something that is the most uncommon and wonderful thing in the world something common and to be despised. How much joy then ought we to have in that quote, festal gathering as we've said, that, that word that is used there in chapter 12 for, that, for people of, of God coming together with joy because they know they're entering into the presence of God and they are accepted before him. That earthly role where all their names are had. They're connected to Christ with, the, with that royal title of firstborn. Inheritors of all things. The psalmist writes, I will make him my firstborn, the inheritor of all, in Psalm 89. But he's not alone. How can there be more than one firstborn? There can't. 
Not really. But God, by gracious adoption, has filled us up with all the inheritance of Christ. Beloved, there's nobody else going to tell you that in the world. But God, through his word. The government won't tell you that. They won't tell you that all things are yours in Christ. They're going to tell you, you need us. This is the place where God, the judge of all, sits upon his throne to scatter away all evil with his eyes and to vindicate and to protect and to judge his people. This is where we can say, coming to controversy with our brother, we can come and we can open the word of God together and hear the voice of God, the judge of all, and we can say, Amen, and put an end to all strife. Truly to be at peace. There's nowhere else like that in the world. Nowhere else like that ever. We come to the one who has ascended the hill of the Lord as our mediator. And we read in Hebrews chapter 7. We quoted this earlier. This man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. When he offered once himself, he sat down at the right hand of his Father. And this is where Christ speaks of better things even than that of Moses Because Moses had his difficulty and did not enter into the land of promise. His blood is better, more efficacious, sacramentally distributed here in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It is this place where Jesus Christ is evidently set before you, crucified, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. And finally, this is the place where this mediator speaks. And he speaks peace to his people because he is our mediator. Well, beloved, I have endeavored over these last few weeks out of Hebrews chapter 12 to show you these great furnishings, ornaments, and inhabitants of Zion. And in hopes that you would, uh, that we all together would increase and grow our esteem of Zion that the Lord would be pleased to come down and to open our hearts open our minds to see how important it is that we meet together in public worship and how much peril we put our souls in when we neglect it I pray that that this series briefly thus far has been uh, helpful to you As we move on then next week, Lord willing, to Psalm 87, we're going to see that we should value the public worship, not because of all these benefits to us, which is what we've been talking about, but now how we should value the public worship because of what it means to God. Beginning in Psalm 87, verse 1, God loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Judah. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer.
Our dear Heavenly Father, as we have looked over this chapter, uh, the end of chapter 12, and certainly uh, thou didst pack much into that place of Scripture, we pray that we might take what we have heard this day and use it for uh, greater fodder for our own meditations. As we think through each of these uh, furnishings uh, of the statement, the nomenclature, of the church, Zion, Jerusalem, and so on. And as we study the inhabitants of that city, that great city, we thank thee, Lord, that we might come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, unto God, the judge of all, that this is indeed the place of communion, as that tabernacle of old was called the tent of meeting, that is, meeting of God with his people. So we might reckon today's visible assembly that worships in spirit and in truth to be today's tent of meeting. And that we might meet with thee. And that we might with the psalmist remember that there is none upon earth that we desire beside thee. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Please remain standing and turn with me in your Psalters to 